All right, welcome everybody here. Should we get going here? Our continued uh, study of Mark. If you recall, the last time we met, um, we went obviously in real depth in the parable of the sower. We, we looked at the beginning, just the parable itself, and then Jesus' interpretation of it. We looked at why the need for a parable. Then we got into um, the parable of a lamp under a basket. So today I'm going to try to get us through the parable of the seed growing, the parable of the mustard seed. And then we'll briefly get out of parables for a minute, and we're going to talk about getting to Jesus calming a storm and then Jesus healing a man with a demon. Maybe we can get through all that uh, uh, today if we can. But if not, that's all right. We'll pick it up next time. So uh, that being said, why don't we open with our invocation in the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay then, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, If you want to turn to Mark 4, uh, verse 26, we'll start out here with the parable of the seed growing. Now, just to to start here, this parable is actually unique to Mark's gospel. This is the only one, it's the only, Mark is the only one that mentions this parable. And, and now we're going to see kind of a progression here on these two parables. We're kind of going into now showing uh, how Jesus is going to start commenting on the success of himself and his mission and what this looks like. So it's going to now going to be kind of a, a positive spin on what Jesus, not spin, but a positive message what Jesus is saying here with these next two parables. It's kind of we've seen before. Uh, this is about now what Jesus has seen is going to happen with his word. So we get into these two parables. Again, related kind of the parable of the sower. It has to do with uh, farming and planting and things growing, the next two. So why don't we jump right into the first one here, which is the parable of the seed growing. Again, uh, chapter 4, verses 26. I'll read through this first parable, and then we'll go through it, and then we'll move on. Okay, so the parable of the seed growing. And he said, of course, that's Jesus. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the air, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. All right here. So here we go. So starting with verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Okay, so he starts out, and he said, this is basically, and he proceeded to say, so he's continuing to address the same crowd as the parable of the sower we saw um, as he was teaching by um, the Sea of Galilee at the beginning. So this is just kind of a continuation, one right after another, okay? 
that's why it's important. And he said, he's continuing to say to them. So he's addressing this crowd, and then he brings up the kingdom of God again. And if you'll recall, we talked about the kingdom of God at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right after his baptism, remember? And then he was tempted in the wilderness. Then we talk, Then he starts his ministry, and right off the bat, right after those two things happen, Jesus says in, in chapter 1, verse 15, the time was fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So this kingdom of God, as we talked about that before, of course, the kingdom now has come to full, has come in the advent of Jesus. So, of course, Jesus came to fulfill all of God's promises uh, about the salvation of word of the world. And th- this is what it is, the kingdom of God now with Jesus. Okay, so what is this? Jesus is going to talk about more what happens with this kingdom of God. And it's uh, then a, so the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, of course, we talked about the parable of the sower. We know what the scattering the seed is like. It's kind of that same mental image uh, that we talked about before. But interestingly, on this one, the man scattering the seed on the ground, uh, commentators uh, have different ideas about who this man is. Some say it's Jesus is the man scattering, but as we'll see later in verse 27, they talk about after the man scatters, he sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He, not, he knows not how. So I think even though Dr. Veltz thinks it's Jesus, a pastor in his uh, parables class actually brought this up to me, and I think, I think it's right. I said not, not necessarily that this... This, this Jesus referring to himself, because as we know, Jesus knows how everything grows because he is God. So I think the better, maybe, way of looking at who is this man sowing, it probably is the broader church or the pastor, okay, sowing. Sowing, and, and of course, sowing the seed is sowing the word, which we know is the same as the parable sower. So the man, the church here we see is sowing or spreading the word and then on the ground what would that be that's uh, those who are now living in God's rule and reign on earth so this is the kind of the picture that we've got here of what's going on so again the man is the church sowing the seed speaking which is speaking the word and then it's on the coming on the ground to those all living here now under God's reign and rule okay so um, then verse uh, 27, he sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Of course, as I said, Jesus, of course, knows how it grows. Um, but, um, and of course, he who gave the word certainly knows all about the mysteries of its development. So anyways, I think what Jesus is really doing, this is, is kind of comparing, talking about the church and the pastor in comparing the church to a man who scatters his seed. And then what happens once he scatters it? It says here that, the, that this person trusts that the seed is going to grow on its own, right? On its own power. So that's what he, what's going on here. The seed sprouts and grows. Of course, it does this by itself. So really the, the trust here is exhibited in, in this sowing, uh, and the trust is, as then it says, is once this seed or the word is sown or spread, what does the man do? 
He sleeps at night, sleeps night after night, rises day after day, and he never worries about the seed. So this is actually, then you see this kind of this picture image of, of once this, the, the word is sown, whoever's doing the sowing can sleep and knowing that there's this real trust in not on what man is doing, but trust in what the word is doing. And that's kind of how we can see it in this parable here. In fact, then, whoever, the, the, the church or the pastor who is just talk, preaching the word doesn't even know how it grows, okay? He only knows how it does so. And you see, that's the same with the farmer, right? Of course, nowadays with our um, agricultural engineering, I think there's a little bit more, but taking a step back just in the overall medical, metaphorical sense, when the farmer plants the seed in the ground, he can sleep. He doesn't know it grows, but he knows it just grows. And that's exactly how it is with the word today, right? Word is spread. Nothing that the, the person does. It, it's all about the word growing and spreading. So again, this is illustrating when Jesus is talking about. It, it, Jesus is illustrating the confidence that, that, that he has in the word. You guys see that on verse 27 there? All right, so then in verse 28 here, um, of course, though, but before I get into that, it's again, the, the word properly sown is all that is needed. And again, the word takes care of itself. It is full of life and of power. And we see this in Hebrews 4.12. I won't have you go to it. I've got it written down here which uh, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, so kind of up to this point, we can sum, sum it up as this, is the powerful action of the word, that's where it is, it's the action of the word without additional human assistance. It's all the word that's doing that that's growing on its own. Okay? And then verse 28 here, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So by itself, the earth produces by itself. The Greek word is automate, which we get the word automatic from. And this is signifying this growth and maturity. And I think the study note um, here does a pretty good job on it. If you've got your uh, study Bible in front of you on, for, on uh, 428, it says, The earth does not actually produce growth by itself. Greek automate. The plant owes its growth, growth to the power of God, who both creates and sustains the natural order. Growth in the kingdom of in the kingdom of God is similar, similarly the results of God's word and spirit, not the speaker or the hearer. So I think that's kind of the point of this parable that we're seeing up to this point. Would you repeat that sentence? Yeah, it's, uh, let's see, 4, uh, 428. It was, uh, growth in the kingdom is similarly the results of God's word and spirit, not the speaker or hearer. And that's Romans 10, 17. Okay. Then we have a little 
change here, an eschatological change. When we look at uh, verse 429. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, the thing that cuts, because the harvest has come here. Okay, so three little things here. So the harvest has come. The harvest is being ready. So that, that would be when the full goal in God's plan has been reached after the word is sown. Of course, we're not there yet, right? The sickle in this is actually the judgment, the day of judgment. Puts in the sickle. And then at the beginning it says, but when the grain is ripe. And that's really this. So it's the coming of judgment at the proper time. Okay, so that's what's going on. This kind of eschatological meaning with this. Uh, verse 29 here, the end time. So, so when you put it then, when you look at it there and kind of all together, what is the overall message of this? And it's, you know, the ministry of Jesus, especially in his preaching and teaching, brings about the rule and reign of God in a way that is simple but yet mysterious, which finally inevitably leads to success. And here's the deal, at the proper time. We don't know, but it's, it's, it's all in God's hand. The spread of his word, when he comes back, it's, 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 it's an all in God's hand. So pra- pragmatically, really, this is comforting for us. And it's to assure those with eyes to see and ears to hear that despite meager appearances, unproductiveness, the fullness of God's reign and rule will be achieved on his own terms. Okay? And the study note, I think, I'm sorry I keep referring to it, but I think it, it does a good job on these. So the end here on 4, 26 through 29, it says, God's kingdom grows mysteriously of itself as it's at its own pace and through the power of the word. This reality often causes frustration among those who eagerly long for a rapid expansion of the kingdom. And all the more as we only have a short-term view of things. But God's kingdom grows according to his plan and timetable. Isn't that good? I mean, we, we think about that all the time. Here, you know, pastor's preaching. The church is still here. We're preaching and preaching. Why isn't it growing? What's happening? That's in God's hand, right? It's in God's hand. He's in control. His word does what it does. And we put all our trust in God that he knows what he's doing, right? And then the, the, uh, the harvest will come when he says it's good and ready to come. Nothing on what, what we say or when we say. So that's the parable of growing seed. Anybody have a different take on it? Yes. Oh, okay, a question? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he puts in the sickle. I mean, that would have to be, that would have to be reference to, to Jesus when he comes back, yeah. Yeah, 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 it is interesting. And again, there is, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to say that at the beginning when it says, the man sowing is not Jesus. I mean, Dr. Veltz thinks it is. Other people think it's the church, but I don't think that's the point. I think it's probably both. 
It just is strange a little bit when, if we say that it's Jesus, the one that's actually doing the sowing, and then he goes on, he says that the seed sprouts and grows. He's not, he knows not how. That kind of throws a little wrench in things, right? So that's why other commentators say, wait a minute. But Jesus does know how because he's God. But in any event, it's about, it's about Jesus and the church, the pastors, uh, proclaiming the word of God. Yes. That phrase, knows not how, reminds me of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I think he does, but when he says we not, that's yeah. human beings, right? Yeah, yeah, right, right. That's a good point. That's right. But that is the point. We don't know how the, you know, we know that the, when the word's proclaimed, it does its thing on its own. We do not know how. We'll know someday. We'll know someday. But we just trust in God. Mm-hmm. Uh, correct me. I, this is, I, I had a thought with, you know, the minutia in this. The way I'm starting to see this now uh, with the sowing of the seeds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the ground is the issue. And the connection of how the seeds grow is a focus on the word itself in the yeah, that's good, right? That's right. There is so there's a difference. It's not the soil. It's saying it's, it, then yeah, I, right. Then I want to ask, mm-hmm. and I thought this before we in class, with the ground, focus on the ground. Okay. Can we say that one's environment influences how the seed works, the culture, or not? Because I think you can get contrary stories. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we kind of talked about that. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's the mystery, the mystery of how the word is sown, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of tough to mix the two parable of the sower and then the parable of the seed growing together because of different soils. But I guess here really is more that when the word, the word produces on its own. And, and, and that's... that's yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Then I want to ask with the parable of the seed growing, mm-hmm. is the earth produces by itself. Now, the only thing I can come up with is man was created from the dust of the earth. Is this a reference to man? Yeah, the earth produces by itself. I don't think so. I mean, the study Bible says the earth does not actually produce growth by itself, in the Greek automatic, but the plant owes its growth to the power of God. So I think that's where the earth producing itself, we need to look at it, that's earth producing based on creation and that God created, and he's the one that's allowing it to grow. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good questions. Any other questions or take on the? Boy, we're coming quite the uh, agriculturalists in this class. I'm learning a lot about it, sowing seeds and. Okay, so in that same <laughs> same line of questioning, let's look at another uh, agricultural here issue, another planting here. The parable of the mustard seed. So that's uh, Mark 4, beginning with a verse 30 here. So I'll read through it, and then we'll come back through it uh, as we did before. All right. So again, a continuation. These are all together at the Sea of Galilee, talking to the, sa- the same crowds. Uh, he says, and he said, and Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, 
which wins which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade and i'll stop there cuz in the next kind of talks about what these parables are Okay, the parable of the mustard seed. So again, it's a continuation of the last parable. It's commenting on the se- su- what will be the success of Jesus in his mission ultimately. And again, it's building up on the previous ideas of the parable of, of course, automatic fruit bearing of the soil and the seed. And, and that Jesus' mission and ministry will ultimately find success as God reigns and rules. Uh, reign and rule comes to fruition. So then this parable is going to focus upon the extent of the reach of that reign and rule as it develops over time. All right. So verse 30 here. And he said, of course, it was Jesus said, look, he opens up with two questions. Okay. One, what can we compare the kingdom of God? So we know what the kingdom of God is. We just looked at that. And he says, or what parable shall we use for it? So two questions right off the bat. I did a lot of research on this, and the best that we can come up with, and I think it's probably right, you know, Jesus says these two things because he wants his hearers uh, to really give this a diligent thought, and especially his disciples. It's a way of gaining their attention, possibly. But again, something very unusual here is going to be depicted about the rule and reign of God here. So he's a tension grabber, possibly. Okay, so that's how we open. So then verse 31, we get into it. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the, on the earth. Okay, so just a couple little things. Um, at, at that time, traditionally, um, the mustard seed was seen as the smallest seed. I think that's maybe not the case. There could be smaller seeds. But again, that's not the point. This is kind of, this is a hyperbole here. It's claimed not to be taken literally, but it's making a point. Okay, we can all agree that the mustard seed is very tiny. I wish I had one. I, to be honest with you, I've never seen one. Has anybody ever seen a mustard seed? I guess it's very, of course, it's very tiny. So that's the point here. People used to wear them in the wall with part of a necklace. So I see them. Yeah, the 80s had jewelry. Rings, earrings, necklaces. Yeah. In the 80s, they had jewelry. <laughs> I was around in the 80s. That must not have been popular in New Mexico. <laughs> Just in California? Huh? Okay, okay. All right, you guys know better than I do. Okay, so the point is, is there, the argument here is, is Jesus not making an argument. Is the very smallest seed? No, it's just talking about it's a very small seed. Okay, you guys got that? Because you guys maybe know of a smaller seed. I don't, but in any event, that's not the point. The point is, uh, is that he's making a point about something very small. Okay, so the mustard seed then, uh, it, um, it's it's. Uh, here, again, when you compare in the parable what this means, the mustard seed here is the word of God. But again, the little tiny mustard seed seems insignificant. And kind of that's a point. The, maybe the word seems insignificant, okay, at the beginning. But yet, go to verse 32. 
Yet when it is sown, again, we talked about sowing. The seed must be sown. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests and it's shade. Okay, so you guys got the idea, right? The little tiny mustard seed. Now we have this big plant, right, with large branches to where the birds can, can, come, can come and nest in, in their shade. So, again, the mustard seed comes up and because becomes the greatest of all the garden plants and makes these great branches. So the point is, again, from the smallest uh, beginning to the greatest development. You can see how this, where this is going with the word, right? Right. So, in any event, what is the, what are the large branches? Then the large branches come come up here, and and we can kind of see this is the church, the largest kingdom on earth. The church is sown by the insignificant word. Okay. Now the birds. What do we make of the birds? Yeah. I think we can see this as the Christians, right? Christians are coming in, into, the, into the large branches, nesting, right? Tabernacling here within uh, this large uh, tree, so to speak, I guess. I don't know if it's actually a tree, but they're, so they're, you know, it's Christians then. We tabernacle in the church, and the church is shade, like what's going on here. This, yeah. I have to say, this reminds me now of Christ saying, oh, I'm Gathered you as a tent, gathered And the birds in the tree. Good, good comparison. All right. So this giant plant in the church is produced by the word, and what we, the birds, we can tabernacle in it. You know, as the sun too. This is for providing shade now from the hot, scorching sun, and that's kind of what we can be. The church. We come into this shade to protect us from that hot, scorching uh, sun. Of course, we need to be in the church in order to survive, to obtain this life-sustaining shade within the, the church. So, any other further thoughts or question on that? You see how this is kind of a continuation of what the Word is doing and what happens. Again, everything uh, based on what the Word itself is doing, not what we're doing on the Word. Let's see. Okay. All righty. So then now we get to the, Jesus is going to do, a, there's going to a conclusion here. Now this isn't the conclusion of the, there's a couple more parables we'll get to down in Mark, but really kind of the conclusion of this first main section of parables here, where Jesus uh, is going to speak a little bit, talk, talk about what these are. So Mark uh, 4, then 33, as soon as he begins after the parable of the mustard seed, Mark writes this. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. So really what's going on here is that Jesus uses parables so that those who do not understand may understand. Okay, that's kind of the purpose of the parables to show. And again, these really don't become, you know, to where the disciples really understand this until Jesus dies and is resurrected, ascended into heaven. Okay. 
But again, the parables are being told in these ways to make a point about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is in the word. So that's why he's speaking in parables. But then it says, uh, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Okay, but now Jesus, you know, Jesus, this says, is he's going to continue to use many parables whenever he teaches and preaches, and we'll see that. But it doesn't mean that Jesus does not, from here on to the remainder, speak only in parables. No, he's, he's saying that he will in, continue to insert uh, parables within the discourses he does to the remainder of his ministry. Um, let's see. What else here? So then, kind of to sum it up, uh, this whole parable and the meaning, uh, the meaning here. I think the Lutheran Study Bible again does a good point it here. It says, Jesus' parables reassures believer that over time, the kingdom of God will grow incredibly large, far beyond its unassuming beginning. Precisely because the kingdom grows so slowly and its Lord is so patient, believers tend to become discouraged and its enemies are emboldened. But in the end, the kingdom of God alone will stand and everything else will be overthrown. Point of the parables. Any other further comments or questions? I think those are pretty straightforward here. Where did you find that last? That, that was in the Lutheran Study Bible on uh, page 1664. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. If you guys haven't gotten one yet, they're they're really good. They do a good, good job. Yes, Chris. What strikes me with all this is that the parables, the purpose of them is to slow down one's attention, and so just like a seed requires the time, the parable requires a certain amount of time. That's a good, yeah, great point. And think about it, too. I mean, it really makes you think, right? It is, it is a good, good way of teaching, of course. It really makes you kind of dig into and think what's going on as opposed to him just saying something and move on. So, yeah, that's a great point. Good point on that. Okay, so we got through kind of the first round of parables. We'll see a couple more down the road. But now we kind of, uh, kind of t- take a turn here on, on what's going to happen here, kind of get into some really cool stuff here. So if we've got no other uh, questions on the parables, why don't we move on here to Mark uh, 4.35, which is Jesus calms a storm. I was reading one uh, commentary, that Jesus calms a tempest. So Jesus calms a storm. So let's, let's do a little shift here now. So I'll read it and we'll kind of go back and look through it again. So uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 35 On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, remember the crowd we talked about? They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. 
and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is such a great passage, isn't it? So cool. All right, so let's look at this. Jesus comes. I know you guys have heard it, but let's go through it. It's kind of neat little things in here. So on that day, it says here, when evening had come. I thought this was interesting. I kept thinking about evening come. You know, we've heard this before in, uh, in verse, let's see, chapter 132. It seems like every time Jesus does something, and then when evening comes, something else happens. We see in Mark 132. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city, you know, it seems like an evening comes. It's interesting. I thought this, this kind of evening comes. Uh, evening is a time to conclude the day's activities, of course. But I guess here the evening is also a time when divine activity takes place, which we saw earlier and which we see here also. Okay. So then in verse 435, it said they came to the other side of the sea. I passed out um, a map last time, but we don't even talk about it. So what's happening is here is they're, they're moving from the western side of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a couple, uh, that is kind of an important uh, point here because the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is Gentile country. Okay, So now Jesus is moving out of the Israel, the Jewish area. They're going into Gentile country. And this is kind of where he's first starting this. And we're going to see this too in chapter 5 here. So now he's moving in, getting out of the area that we've been studying here up to this time, this Jewish. So he's now into a Gentile country. So let's just real quick, I want to talk about this sequence then. So at the beginning, you know, in kind of Mark 1, after, uh, when Jesus starts his ministry, he's preaching and teaching to the Jews. Remember, we, the scribes and the Pharisees are already coming and we're seeing this hostility development, but he's right teaching, teaching to the Jews at the beginning, okay? And then we see then an increasing rejection by the Jews that are occurring. We kind of talked about that in Mark chapters 2 and 3. And then Jesus starts to rebuke the rejection of him. We see this in 3 and 4 with his parables, right? He's rebuking. And then in 5 here, at the end of 4 and 5, we're seeing now Jesus move um, to work and preach in, 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 in among the Gentiles. What's really cool about this is this is an interesting similarity. It's kind of the same movement or pattern for the missionary activities of St. Paul. So originally, early in his ministry, in Acts 13, 1 through 41, what was Paul doing? He was specifically preaching and teaching to the Jews only. What happens, just like Jesus, the rejection, uh, the Jews start rejecting Paul as well in Acts 13, 45. And then again, just like Jesus, Paul rebukes the rejection. That's Acts 13, 46. I'm not going to go through it. but And then finally, what does Paul do? He then moves to work among the Gentiles. So it's kind of an interesting pattern. We see this, this pattern through. So Paul and same pattern going on. I thought that was very interesting. So again, point is now Jesus is moving uh, clearly into Gentile uh, 
country. So now in verse uh, 436, and leaving the crowd, they took with him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Okay? So they take Jesus just as he was. What does that mean? You know, they just had a long day. Um, could mean that Jesus, they were tired, uh, tired and weary, so they get him on just as he was. Um, LSB note, though, on 436, that Jesus had entered the boat to teach. So there's kind of, we don't know, could have been entered the boat to teach, but I think it's more likely what happened was he was tired because we see what happens. He goes to sleep. So they took him as he was, gets in the boat. And then it's interesting, and other boats were with him. What other boats? Um, we really don't know. It's confusing. Um, if, and this is interesting. I didn't. I can't remember. Doctor Linsky and his commentary kind of looked at this in depth. Said that it really wasn't necessary for them to take more than one boat. There could have been. It should have been one boat. Should have been enough to take all thirteen, the twelve, plus Jesus. Um, also read that. Uh, a Galilean fishing boat in 1986 in the Sea of Galilee dis, uh, discovered this old ancient vessel that was down there, and they brought it up, and it was clearly large enough to accommodate 13 people. So we don't know whether there's these other boats, if it's other people following, or if other disciples were on it or what. But in any event, there was another. There were other boats with with Jesus in his boat, but. Not sure who they were, or if all 13 disciples were in the same boat, uh, apostles or not. So, in any event, that's neither here or there, I guess. Okay, so now we've got the mental picture here. Their boats are out in the sea, and Jesus at the end of a hard day work. Then what happens? The tempest, huh? In verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. Now, I thought this was neat. Look in your, if you have your study Bible on, on uh, the study note for uh, verse 37, if you don't, I'll read it. It says, windstorm. What was this windstorm? The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon is a 9,200-foot-high peak that sits only 30 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. When the westerly winds coming off this mountain collide with the warm air over the lake, sudden and violent storms are sometimes produced. Okay, interesting fact. But, you know, what did cause the storm? It could be that, just... um, Interestingly enough, some argue that it was the devil or the devil that caused it or because Judas was on the bo- on board. I think that's probably incorrect, but uh, interesting interesting take. take. But uh, Dr. Linsky, I think, has it right that the storm came in the providence of God and whose hand are all the forces of nature. Right? So we do have a storm, big storm. In fact, I guess it was big enough. I've not, not been in much, much boats, but I think we all know if you've not been in a boat, if the boat is filling with water, you're probably in serious danger, right? And that's what was happening. The wind was so much that this boat then was starting to take on water, and that's not a good sign.
So great danger is really adequately pictured here. Okay, boat's going to sink. Okay, so got this mental in, got this mental picture now. What's going on? So big, big storm, water coming on the boat. It's going to sink. So in verse thirty-eight, what happens? But he was in the stern. The stern's in the back of the boat, right? He was Jesus. And what was Jesus doing? He was asleep on the cushion. Okay, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? All right, so sleeping, uh, sleep on the cushion, when you actually look at the Greek, it's kind of this continuous construction to the Greek phrase, Jesus was continuously sleeping on on, on the cushion. So, I mean, he had been sleeping, he's continuing to sleep, all right? While this storm is going on, Jesus is continuously sleeping. What does this kind of show us in this action here? It conveys a lack of urgency and a lack of a response. Jesus continuing sleeping when the boat's taken on water. And I think this is, fact is quite remarkable, isn't it? Think about it. The disciples were were freaking out. <laughs> they are seeing the water coming on, but Jesus is just continuing to sleep. So kind of remarkable. And I think we know why, right? I mean, it's so we'll get to, of course we know why Jesus is continuing to sleep. All right, so here we have this going on. Disciples are freaking out, Jesus sleeping. And then what happens here? We see that they, they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And just think about this. This is kind of astounding. Why, why would the disciples turn to Jesus? Recall who we've got on here. When we, when we first looked at the beginning in Jesus' ministry, in chapter 116 here, it was when... Jesus calls his first disciples. Remember passing along the Sea of Galilee? He saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus said, follow them. Then what happens? He goes on and he gets James and John. And what were John? They were in their boats, mending their nets. Remember we talked about this earlier. So four of the apostles right here, are professional fishermen. These guys know what they're doing. They are on that lake of the Sea of Galilee all the time in boats. Maybe this exact boats or similar boats, right? So we've got these expert sailors here, we have to assume. And this is going on. And what do they do? They go and wake up Jesus, okay? You have to think they'd been on this lake before in storms, but it's getting bad. But they go and wake up this Jesus who... He was a carpenter. <laughs> and we know that. He's a carpenter, stepfather, Joseph. So we've got a carpenter on the boat. How could this carpenter know anything about how, what we're going to do in this storm? How did Those guys are the experts, right? You four, you're the experts on doing this. How could they throw themselves uh, to Jesus then as their only hope? Well, I think, I think it's, it is a statement of faith. It is a statement. They, they've been with Jesus now. They've seen what he's done. Obviously, the healings, the miracles. So 
This is a statement of faith. The disciples at this point, I think, do think Jesus is special. And he can, in fact, help them out in this situation. But again, I think as we'll see as we continue to go through Mark, that the now they have an understanding of Jesus, but it's still kind of a partial understanding about him. I still don't think that they fully understand who he is, what he is truly like, and what he's truly about. But again, this is a statement of faith. Again, uh, think of what I said. That here's a carpenter sleeping. You've got four possibly expert uh, <laughs> uh, sailors here, and this is happening. Where do they go? They run to Jesus. All right. So then what happens here in 439? Jesus, uh, and Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Uh, I think this is really cool, interesting. If you could turn with me, if you want, if not, I'll read it, to Psalm 106, it's page 950 in our study Bibles. We see this other places. Again, Psalm 106, 950. All right, Psalm 106. Give thanks to the Lord for his good. This is David writing. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good. For his steadfast love endures forever. We've heard that, right? Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen one, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. This is the point I'm getting at now. Stay with me. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. And he rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the the enemy. He rebuked the sea. The Lord did. Give thanks unto the Lord. Think it takes us all back uh, to the Exodus, right? 106. Same thing going on. He rebuked the Red Sea. What is Jesus doing here? He rebuked this storm. See the parallel now? So the Lord rebuked the Red Sea to enable his redeemed people to cross on their journey to the promised land. Now we see Jesus doing the same thing with his, with his people. He's rebuking. He rebukes the sea. And then he says, peace, be still. Although I don't, the translation's not very good there. The translation, and it can, it's really silence, be still, or be muzzled, be still. Uh, Dr. Veltz goes even farther and says, shut up, 
be still. I don't know if we go that far. He's a little, uh, he gets funny. He gets a little carried away in his Greek translation. So he says, shut up, be still. But in any event, be silence, be still is what Jesus says. And of course, the wind abated and a great calm occurred. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to these, but I'll read them. There's a number of Old Testament parallels uh, to this mastery of the wind and wave. In Psalm 65, verse 8, it says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of his people. Job, similar language, Job 26, verse 12. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. And then also, Psalm 107, verses 28 and 29. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So we see kind of a real congruence here between Mark, here what's going on in the Psalms, with men crying to the Lord, and him delivering them, the stilling of the storm, the calming of the waves. I think most important is you know, the action of the Lord, Yahweh, and Jesus with the parallels between this text and the Psalms, the strong declaration that Jesus is the Lord God of Israel, the one who controls nature, including the wind and the sea. So we see this. Then the storm of Mark here is the result, the calming of the storm is a result of divine activity. Which, why was it done? I think it's done to reveal who Jesus is, to reveal uh, his identity to his closest followers. All right. So we got the miracle. But then it keeps going. The disciples tell you they're funny, and they continue to be funny throughout the remainder of Mark. Right? So Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Okay, so it shows, right, right, they, they did have, it. I think, somewhat of a faith, as I talked about, as they came to him. This verse can be translated, and he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you not yet have faith? Okay, so again, now this is Jesus's second rebuke of his disciples. He first did it uh, at the end of the parables, remember, at 4.13 in the parable of Sower, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So now we have a kind of a second rebuke of them. You cowards, so he says. But why are they, why are they cowardly and faithless in this incident? Hmm? Have they not been given the rule uh, given the mystery of the rule and the reign of reign of God, I mean, uh, Jesus told them that in in four eleven, and he said to them, "To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables." Okay, didn't Jesus explain everything to his insiders, including his disciples? Jesus explained the parable of the sower. These guys still don't get it. You know, they'd still. <laughs> They still don't know, understand fully who Jesus is. And we see this in 41. And again, as I said, we're going to see this ignorance that continues to go on and on um, in Mark. 
This ignorance and lack of faith of Jesus' closest disciples is a strong theme in Mark's gospel. Okay, why are you so afraid if you still no faith? Uh, so, do you not yet have faith? Um, again, as I said, on the one hand, they certainly appear to have some saving faith, right? They follow Jesus. They stay with him. They listen to him. And now we know they come to him for help, which he did here at this, at this storm. These are not insignificant points. So I think we do see faith. But I guess on the other hand, Jesus is saying, do you not yet have faith? They still don't have that faith that rests confidently in Jesus and who he is and what he's come to do. But, and that's why the, the disciples do wonder about their welfare, we saw, even though their Lord is present with them. Okay? Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear, here we go again, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So filled with great fear. Now this is a little different than when the storm here hit. I think uh, Dr. Linsky points this out that at the beginning it was this, as Jesus called them, cowards. So they had this cowardly terror going on when the boat's getting ready to sink, right? So this great fear is the feeling of over... But this great fear, excuse me, now when he talks about this fear, when they were filled with great fear now, it's really kind of this feeling of an overpowering awe that was caused by the revelation of Jesus' almighty power in calming this storm. So the disciples aren't afraid of Jesus in that sense, and they don't run from him. But they really are now looking, they do look at him with this greatest of all. So that's what's going on with this, filled with great fear. Um, so in Mark's gospel, fear relative to Jesus is a sign of divine activity, especially his divine activity. And we'll see this more in, uh, throughout Mark in five, chapter 5, 6, chapter 10, and 16. So this great fear, that's what's going on here. And then they say in verse uh, 41 here, and Who then is this that even the wind and the sea Obey him. So the disciples are confused by the ambiguous picture of Jesus. Remember, who sleeps through a storm, seems unconcerned by their plight. Uh, Then he exerts control over nature, as as Yahweh does. So they're seeing, though, though they know the they knew the Old Testament, they knew the Psalms, they see the similarities which we've talked about. Who is this that control uh, the wind and the seas? The disciples know that humans cannot control the waves of the sea, but they see that Jesus can do this, and it confuses and frightens them. The men recognize that even the mighty elements, the wind and the sea, were wholly subject to the mere command of Jesus. Okay, so it's interesting. So the primary, I think, the meaning of this text is, is it, it does reveal the identity of Jesus. Jesus is revealing him. Self as God. We kind of see the similarities between the Red Sea and other passages in the Old Testament where Yahweh uh, was calming the sea and calming the winds. Okay? 
But then uh, some others have, have said that is the primary meaning. There could be somewhat of a, a, a secondary also that supports this. It's kind of a metaphoric meaning. I think this is interesting. And again, this is not, I'm just, this is interesting things to ponder. I'm not saying that this is how you have to read it. But um, so a metaphoric meaning may be this. Uh, the boat, metaphorically, could be characterized as the church, like, no, and like how the Ark of Noah is. Uh, the disciples here are the believers in that we navigate the sea um, as the journey of life. The wind and the waves as the storms of life. Then the pleas of the disciples come to Jesus and pleading to Jesus is the pleas of us, the people in the church who prayer, uh, the prayers of the believers for help. And here again, Jesus as Lord, both of the church and the world. Meaning that the Lord of the church, though seeming to be asleep and uncaring about what his people are enduring, will arise in due time to bring them salvation. So, just interesting side note. But again, I think that we talked about the main reasons Jesus showing his identity, revealing that he is the true God. Study no kind of to to kind of cap the whole thing. I think it does a fairly good job. Let's see, it's four thirty-five to forty-one. Let's see. I mean, excuse me, it's five. No, it is four. Sorry, four thirty-five. Sorry, I'm messed up. Four thirty-five through forty-one. You see it at the bottom. The study no. Um. When Jesus rebukes the wind and waves, the lifeless storm shows a greater recognition of his divine power than the disciples. Uh, Similar examples still abound as the brute forces of nature invariably obey the Lord's commands better than people, including God's own children, obey them. But the Lord nonetheless continues to love and care for us despite our dullness and doubts. He not only calms all of the storms in our lives, but actually does so in ways that mature our faith and lead us to trust Him more deeply. Good. All right, any questions or anything I've missed or anything that you guys see here on this? It's a great, yeah, we've got a couple questions back there. It's kind of fun that in the parable of the growing seed, we saw that the sower would sleep or wake. Meanwhile, uh, the seed continues to grow. Excellent. Yeah. Good point. I didn't catch that. No one else does. Yeah, that's an awesome point. Yeah, there you go. Jesus still uh, slept, knowing what was going on, knowing that it would be okay. Good point. Excellent. I think we had another hand back here. Yeah. Know by now yeah. that you can trust in me, yeah. and and um, so it seems a little bit surprised, right? right. That, that they don't kind of seem surprised that you know that they didn't understand the parable, right? He's rebuking them, sometimes. yeah. And what they've all think of what they've seen, think of what we covered so far, all the miracles. I mean, all the people he's healed, the demons that he's, I mean, he's done a lot. And here, you know, I don't know. It is, it is. I think it's astounding that they. 
But I do think, though, that they had some faith. Like I said, here's a carpenter. They're possibly expert sailors. They run to him. So they had some faith, but still, you know, they were scared. I think Jesus does rebuke them by saying that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So there was some faith, so it's kind of right after the mustard seed. It's Mm -hmm. kind of, okay, they had some faith, but they still don't quite get it. But, you know... uh, it was revealed when he was baptized, this is my son. And then later he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother. So he had laid out enough for them to know. Yeah. But he said, you know, pay attention to what you're here. So he's kind of rebuking them for you know, being worried. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it too. Yeah, right. Yeah, with the, the, the panic nature they were, right? King panic nature. But I think in our we're human, I think... Uh, I don't know. It's interesting to think. But you think, though, after you'd seen all the miracles, you could just go and say, uh, excuse me, Jesus, can you get up and calm this storm? But I don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have a question? Oh, well, I, I'm not mistaken. Is Mark the shortest of the four Gospels? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, well, he's getting at the story told really fast. But what's impressing me with this study is that it's full of details. Right, right. And just like, okay, it's not Jesus is asleep. He's in the back of the boat. He's sleeping on a cushion. All the details like that. And I happened to hear recently on issues, it may have been a lawyer who was talking about this, that one way to detect whether someone is telling a lie or telling the truth is by the details that are put into the story. That the person is actually in his head picturing what happened and can give all these little details where otherwise it would just be, well, we had a storm on the sea and Jesus stopped the storm. That's great, yeah. Although Mark probably wasn't an eyewitness to this. You remember, as I said at the beginning, he he was close to Peter and followed Peter. So I'm sure Peter had told this story in, in detail too many times. Right. And that with that kind of... So I think you give Mark credit on this. You know, he's really being specific listening on... Listening carefully. Listening carefully and recording these details that Peter probably keeps continuing yeah. to repeat too. So that's a great point. Well, and what, what the, for one of the first things that hit me is that it describes even when he first met these four men what the first two were doing in the process of fishing and then as he walks along I'm picturing mm-hmm. he sees Andrew and, and John and they're at another stage right. in the fishing you know, point. I like, oh my goodness this is all mm-hmm. That's cool. mm-hmm. one other question or, yeah. when I read the why are you so afraid and you still have no faith it reminded me of how he talks to the Pharisees yeah. so he's still doubt, knowing their Doubting. Good point. Yeah. And they, um, you you described that they were in awe, but when they call, why? How can you do this to the sea and that? That's what the Pharisees come back at them too. Point, yeah. Same thing. So the yeah the point is, is he didn't sugarcoat it even with his own disciples. He rebuked the Pharisees and even his closest followers. He's not going to sugarcoat it. Say, you oh, you of little faith. So that's yeah that's great. We're going to see that about Jesus. Is, is he, he doesn't, he's not going to sugarcoat anything, which is great. All right, well, thank you guys so much. We're a little bit over. Uh, the Lord be with you.